Welcome back, everybody, to another episode. This is back-to-back recordings that I'm doing of the episode right now. As always, rnkmobilerverepair.com. Go check them out for any of your mobile living device, camper, RV, trailer, motorhome, you name it. If it has wheels and it's enclosed and it has any sort of living quarters or needs repair on it, like leaky windows, plumbing issues, mechanical issues, whatever it may be. These guys come to you if you're in the Dallas, Austin, Houston Triangle or somewhere about that area. They will come out to you, repair your stuff, get you back on the road, have you sleeping good at night, whatever it may be on your vacation. And everybody's happy with little fuss and they do a great job. So go check them out, rnkmobilerverepair.com and give them a call and they'll be out there to help you. All right. Before we get started and I announce who the guest is on this one, go and rate the podcast, review it, or you might want to listen to this podcast first, then go rate and review because this is a great, great episode of the podcast. Well, probably one of my favorites for sure and such a great conversation. But if you rate and review, give me five stars or give the podcast five stars, put a written review down if you have time. It really helps uh, whenever you type in a keyword or a search word for the podcast to pop up up towards the top. So um, if you wouldn't mind doing that, I really appreciate it. And that is purely the result of the listeners of this podcast. So you're responsible for that and you can feel responsible and know that you're a part of it. So uh, there you go. There's that. Um, Now, on to the episode with Anna Wolf. She has a new book coming out, which we talk about, The Legal Brothel System in Nevada, very interesting subject she's got. She she probably will change your viewpoint, and if she doesn't, I mean, that's fine, but it's still interesting to listen to. It's not a promotion for or against. It is simply the information behind the this system and what goes on, um, everything from that to outdoor to fly fishing. It's just a great conversation, and so I'll let her explain it more because she does such a great job doing it. Now, Please enjoy Anna Wolf. All right, we're going. Okay. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, That's I'm awesome. excited. Um, I guess explain a little bit like how old you are, where you're from. Okay. Um, a little bit of that. Yeah, so Everybody. I'm 31. Um, I'm originally from Fayetteville, Ohio, which is a tiny one spotlight or one stoplight town in uh, southwestern Ohio. Southwestern. Yeah, okay. Like two gas stations and a school and that's about it so right in the town is that on the kentucky border uh yeah it's so uh where i grew up it was about an hour from downtown cincinnati and so most gotcha. of my family is kind of in the cincinnati area um so i grew up in cincinnati um and then uh wanted to go away for college and so I didn't even look at any schools in the state of Ohio I was you know trying to spread my wings so I started out on the north side of Chicago at a small liberal arts school um, I was planning on playing college soccer um, and I tore my ACL the summer before my senior year and oh, so bummer. that made me kind of reevaluate my plans um, and so instead of like shooting for the biggest school I could go to I made, made me change my priorities so I went to a small liberal arts college um started at Lake Forest and I did play soccer I played soccer all through um all through college but um started at Lake Forest graduated from Georgetown College in Kentucky and then uh got to 
study at Oxford University in England um, for a term, um, as which was incredible and just made me realize I wanted to like be in settings like that more and I wanted to be part of that life. And so I came back, went to grad school at Ohio University, um, got my PhD in communication, and then got a job uh, at the University of Nevada that took me out to Reno. Um, and then from Reno, moved to Texas in 2016. So uh, I came here from Reno uh, for a job at A&M. Oxford, Reno, A and M. That's right. quite the different cultures that you get to that you get to see. Really different <laughs> cultures. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you came here just for a job at A and M. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I don't have any friends or family down here. Uh, we didn't know anybody. Um, I was recruited by the communication department to apply, and even when I applied, I didn't think I was going to take the job. And then I just kind of started to fall in love with the idea of, of working at A&M. And I was persuaded. So, <laughs> so we made the move. And uh, it's been good for us so far. Nice. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. It's really cool. Um, what, I guess, when did you meet your husband along that, along oh, that yeah. time frame? Yeah, so I met Joda um, when we were in grad school at Ohio. And um, that's a fun story if you want to hear it. Yeah, absolutely. Any stories you want to tell are good. Okay, so uh, Joda is an interesting guy. He's like the most interesting man in the world. And so he was was living in San Diego doing real estate um, and coaching football. And he decided he wanted to focus on the football part. And so he enrolled in an online master's program at Ohio University. Um, And when that started, they flew him and the rest of his cohort to Athens, Ohio, to meet each other and get oriented. And so during that orientation, he just goes to the football stadium and asks if they have a GA position available uh, in the spring. And they're like, no. Uh, Well, we don't know, but check back with us in January. He's like, okay, I'll see you in January. So he goes back to San Diego, packs up his car, and just moves across the country. That's awesome. And as he's moving, he's calling numbers on Craigslist, trying to find a place to live. And my best friend in my PhD program happened to have a closet sized space available in her house. And so uh, he moves in and he's taking online classes, trying to volunteer enough that he gets a GA position with the football team. And, uh, after two weeks of being there, she was tired of having him around the house so much. And so she was like, I need to introduce you to my friend. <laughs> so, so we all went out to dinner together and I didn't realize it was a setup until like retrospectively, I look back and he was wearing a button down shirt. I've only seen him wear a button down shirt like twice in my life. And that's and so, one of them. Yeah. So he knew it was a setup, but, but we started, uh, we just hit it off and went on our first date after that and uh have been together ever since we moved across the country together um and uh moved to reno he was working with the football team there um as the he did a lot of had a lot of different roles but by the time we left he was the director of 
recruiting and football operations. And for what university? For the University of Nevada. Okay. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. That's a big. Deal. What what time frame was that? Wasn't that was Kaepernick um, time frame? Was it? No, it was right after him. Right so, after him. Okay. Yeah. So Brian Polian was the head coach while we were there. Gotcha. Um, so it was 2013 to 2016. Nice. That we were there. Yeah. That's and a big deal, though. It, That's yeah, a big it was awesome. cool, big deal. It was cool to yeah. be part of that world, and we got to like go to bowl games and like just be part of the Division One football culture. And he actually, uh, Nevada played A and M after I had my first interview, but before I had the job offer. So Joda was here and like knew it was possible that we'd be moving. Oh, um, so he so got to was, see what it was all about. Yeah, it yeah, was, it was pretty cool. But nice. Yeah. Yeah. Luckily, the fans are really good. Yeah. They're pretty nice. They're pretty nice <laughs> yeah. to all, like everybody from outside town. Like, they're a pretty friendly group of people up yeah. here. I'm not from here, so it makes it easy for me to speak objectively mm-hmm. oh, towards yeah, it at sure. least, you know? Yeah. Um, I guess I'm more it was binary, nothing, so. It was nothing that scared them away from moving. That's uh, for sure. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. But I've heard Reno's nice. I, I mean, I know. Reno is the most underrated city that I've ever been to. Um, I think that a lot of people on the outside, they might like drive through and they see the casino core and they just think like, oh, this is a dirty version of Vegas. Like it gets that sort of insult a lot, (laughs) which makes like a lot of the Reno people have a chip on their shoulder, but uh, it's a really cool town and you're half an hour, 45 minutes from Truckee and Lake Tahoe and like it's, you're mountains and rivers we, we lived on the Truckee river and we could go out and just oh. fly fish in our backyard and, <laughs> like that was hard to give up yeah to move i here. imagine but so. the job was so good so. well I'm, I, I'm a dork for some of these like extreme athletes yeah. like being involved in that world and alex honald is one of my favorite people to follow and he's talking that he he lives there now instead of oh. in california and it's because they have all these great places to climb like oh, 10, yeah. 15 minutes from his door. Like he yeah. just takes off and <clears throat> he can have an actual place now instead of living in his van. Well, yeah, to do I was going to say cost so, of living is so yeah. much better too. Yeah, so he just goes there like, and cl- he can climb every day and do his stuff. So yeah, it changes your perspective on, you know, what you see of Reno in the pictures and then oh, what yeah. Reno actually is. Yeah. It's a like an outdoor mecca. It is. It's an outdoor mecca, and it's got this really cool arts culture, too. And so, like, it's just kind of a funky place to live. So it was fun. And um, and Joda and I got married while we were there and then oh, moved here. that's nice. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he proposed to me and uh, by asking me if I would marry him tomorrow. And then uh, we had a 16-hour engagement and then got married. That is a cool story. Yeah. I like that. Did you yeah. get married in one of those little Elvis chapels? We didn't, um, but he got one of the chaplains from one of those Elvis chapels yeah. to come meet us. One of our, a uh, couple of our friends owned a koi pond outdoor garden thing, like right on the Truckee River. And it was walking distance from where we lived. And so we uh, woke up in the morning and went to the mall and I got a dress and he got a tie. And Perfect. We went to the university and checked out a video camera because we didn't have anything, but we wanted to record it. And then uh, went had had a nice little private ceremony right there on the Truckee River at our friend's place, and um, had all you could eat sushi 
and then took a red-eye flight to Mexico and went scuba diving for a week. Oh, and that's... So. There's another thing. Scuba yeah. diving. I've, I wanted to do it, like... It'd be oh. something that I want to do, especially after going to Hawaii and snorkeling with the turtles. Oh, and how seeing cool. all yeah. of them like swimming around them and having some come like right up to your face. Yeah, and it it blew both myself and Kim's. Like we were we were. Yeah. I got so that's the only time I got sunburned while I was out there because I I stayed out snorkeling with my back up like this oh, the whole yeah. time with no shirt on. Just I was trying to find whatever we could find little fish or i think scuba diving i would love i love the water anyway scuba diving is incredible you just realize like how much of the world we we don't see because there's just a whole universe that's down there under the surface and even if you're snorkeling like you can see it from up above but like you can actually swim in the reefs and like you're there with the fish and it's just it's incredible um, and so I had never been scuba diving before that and, and Joda had, uh, so he was getting, I don't know, going on like his 50th dive and I was going on my first. And so I, we, I dove 15 times during that week and got my advanced, um, oh, certification. You, you got it yeah, during, uh-huh, like on yeah, the honeymoon? Yeah. <laughs> yep. yep. <laughs> That's awesome. We just went scuba diving like Twice a day, every day, and uh, hung out on the beach, and it was great. That sounds like a perfect vacation. Oh, it was great. That's what we love about Maui is that, that we kind of did the same thing. Well, I mean, we did a lot of hiking, but oh, yeah. it was a lot of hiking and then going back to the beach and chilling. Yeah. And we'd find the remote beach. We really like these little remote beaches. Um, that's one thing we like about Maui. It's less touristy yeah. in a lot of spots, so you can just find stuff, and you can go and surf, and you can... Yeah playing the shore breaks or scuba dive or snorkel or whatever you want to do. Yeah. It's just right there. Yeah. It's, it's really neat. So that sounds like something. Oh yeah. It's incredible. And it's so funny cause you know, I grew up in such a tiny rural community and to, if you would have told me as a kid that I would like have a place in Montana that I'd be, you know, into fly fishing and scuba diving and like all these things that just seem so foreign I would not have believed you but I would have been excited about the idea you know? yeah um, yeah I can imagine yeah. like so. you go from a small town then your eyes you get addicted to that oh, yeah. like well the world's so different than what I thought in my little tiny small town it's so big and there's so much that you can do and so yeah I feel like I've just sucked up opportunities as they've come and so it's led me all sorts of crazy directions but <laughs> yeah and <laughs> but we it's can, been fun we can get into that too about oh, yeah, sure. your book that you have coming out yeah um and kind of share a little bit about that story of i yeah. talking before the podcast we we knew like i know a little bit about it yeah. but you can explain more yeah sure so i have a book coming out through uh nyu press um it goes out on January 15th so in two days which is awesome Um, and so it's called uh, Sex and Stigma Stories of Everyday Life in Nevada's Legal Brothels and so um, I wrote this with uh, my colleague Sarah Blythe who is a professor at the University of Nevada and with our mutual student uh, Brianna who uh she was an undergraduate student when we started this project. She's a master's student now working on her thesis with Sarah at the University of Nevada. 
But Brie uh, actually works in the legal brothels, and she has for about six years now. And so uh, I think the story of our relationship is really central to like how the book happened. But it, it started out that Sarah and I were working together at the University of Nevada, and there was a call in the biggest journal in our area, um, Management Communication Quarterly, they wanted to do a special issue on hidden organizations. And I generally study a lot of things about like identity and conflict and organizations and how uh, organizations interact with the communities that they're situated in. So like that's generally what I study. Sarah studies a lot about gender and communication, especially in workplaces. And so she came to me and she said, I've got this crazy idea and I can't get it out of my head, but I think we should study the legal brothels for this special issue. And she pitches the idea to me and talks about how like, the idea came to her when she was at uh, the Virginia City Camel Races. So Virginia City... <laughs> <laughs> Virginia City... Is this old <laughs> ghost town um, oh. that it's it's an old mining community where the Comstock Lode was discovered, which is like one of the biggest discoveries of of gold and silver in U.S. history, and so it was like a big boom town that came up in the West. And every year they have these camel races, which is exactly what it sounds like, and so it's a big community event. And she was there with her two kids, and the announcer said was was uh, narrating this one race and making some like raunchy comments about the riders and she studies gender and she's kind of getting upset like what's going on why would he talk about these women like that and then he she realized that these were legal prostitutes that were riding the camels um and that they were from Mustang Ranch which was one of the brothels down down the street from Virginia City, and the uh, Mustang Ranch was one of the major sponsors of the event. And so then she just, like, started to notice how the brothels support these communities, and given her interest in gender, my interest in community, she was like, we, should, we need to study this. That's crazy. So we got deeper into it and realized that, like, some of the rural brothels... The, in order to exist, they're taxed at a really high rate, and those taxes support school districts and like their entire school districts that couldn't exist like they do if it weren't for the legal brothel system. And so the the My brothels exist. Right I know it's said. crazy. So like the the brothels exist in this really crazy tension because communities need them for the economic benefits uh the there are absolutely people who are morally opposed to the fact that they exist but the state of nevada also has this libertarian spirit that's like you do you i'll do me as yeah. long as like you don't mess with my life then you can live however you want and so um so the brothels kind of live in or exist in that context so we wrote this first article it gets published in the special issue which was awesome, and we kind of thought that's it. Like, 
we had done what we set out to do. And then Bree was a student in my leadership class at that time. And in that class, they have to tell a story of self that explains like their personal values and where they come from. A story of us that connects those personal values to a larger community. Um, and then a story of now that mobilizes that community to some sort of collective action. And so they had done their personal narratives. They were getting into the story of us and students show up and I tell them, okay, today we're going to workshop your stories of us. So find a partner and you're going to share your stories and work through it. And Brie comes up to me and she's holding her paper and she was like, I didn't know that we were going to be workshopping these with other people today. And I'm comfortable with you seeing this, but I don't know if I'm ready to share it with anyone else. And she holds out her paper and points to the middle of the page and it says, I am a sex worker. I was like, oh my gosh, this is, <laughs> this is amazing. Uh, we need to talk. Uh, obviously, she knew about my research and that's why she felt comfortable telling me. She had taken an organizational communication class with me the semester before, so she knew me well. So that just started this whole second wave of our research. Like a chain of events that just like yeah, happened. Yeah. Like you're preparing yourself for something sort of, and then all of a sudden this just falls. Like yes. someone you know already that you've been around and have no and idea. she's and brilliant, and like she was one of my strongest students, um, and I she just violated everybody's expectations about what a sex worker is, you know? And so um, she ended up coming out to my leadership class, like telling all of them that she's a legal sex worker and she like educated them about like what that means and the sort of discrimination she faces and the unfair labor practices. And well, I'm sure there's lots of that. All of this It's not stuff, like the right? most ethical... Business. I mean, it's legal, but it it its origin is around illegal. Well, and so there's so much work in the state of Nevada to try to say like uh, to try to differentiate legal and illegal prostitution. Yeah, and so that's a lot of the like educational work that Bree's been trying to do is to show like, look, working in a legal setting, I have she has. I don't want it to sound in this like I'm saying yeah, I you're, have you're right? speaking but, in right? this, so, yeah, yeah. Brie and <laughs> all the women who work in the legal brothels they have uh, STD checks once a week they have HIV checks uh, once a month they have to be cleared um, on all these public health issues uh, before they can even work they have to check people for STDs is the first thing that they do according to state law they have to um, wear condoms for everything. They have to like show records of all they, these things too. Yeah, Just like a regular business organization mm-hmm. would have to show records of sales versus, you know, your product. Yeah, it's and highly regulated. Yeah. Um, their inspections. Um, they, there are a lot of laws and that they have to live up to. And so I, I learned so much. Um, and Brie has really become an advocate in a lot of ways. Um, but when she came on the project, it just expanded our work and so now we've got a bunch of articles that are already out a couple book chapters but this book kind of brings it all together she's got a chapter where she's writing in first person about her own experiences in the brothels we interviewed 
former sex workers. We visited eight different brothels um, and did observations and interviewed women who worked there and brothel owners um, and the sole lobbyist for the state. And uh, yeah, it, it was a big project, but it's I'm so, so excited about the book coming out. Were there a lot of differences between the, because you went to eight different ones. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of differences, or are they all kind of similar? Like, would, did the owners vary? Were some of them nice, some of them not nice? Oh, yeah, you know, how, yeah. Like, that goes? Yeah, no, there's there's a lot of diversity. Um, I would say that the biggest distinction that, uh, that I notice is between the rural brothels and the suburban brothels. So, according to state law, uh, prostitution is legal in the state of Nevada, except where counties or cities have determined that it's not, um, and except in any county that has a population of 700,000 or more. And there's only one county that does, which is Clark County, where Vegas is. So prostitution by state law is illegal. And So in... Vegas has more. So you're saying Vegas, Vegas has, has the most where you has the highest a, population. You can't have a brothel in Vegas, right? You can't have a brothel in all of Clark County, which is where Vegas is. But you can drive 20 minutes outside of Vegas to Pahrump, and there are a bunch of brothels right there. So how how do they? Because I've been there a few times, and there's like mm-hmm. the free magazines, and then mm-hmm. people like. I don't know, I call them pimps walking around throwing out their cards, yeah. you know, for girls. They're, it's everywhere. So how oh, do yeah. they get away with that part? Do they come from out of the county? You pay, like, out there? Or how does that work? Well, so there are a couple things. So some people offer, like, driving services. And so what they're advertising is to drive you to one of the legal brothels that's outside of Clark County. And so they'll drive you 20 minutes away. Um, some of what you're seeing is illegal prostitution. And so... There are women that we talked to who maybe started um, their, started into sex work by being carpet walkers, and that's working in the hotels and casinos. I kind of, um, I didn't know that for sure when you said it, but I kind of figured. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, like, you would have street walkers. Um, yeah, carpet walkers. Carpet walkers. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, like, they have all these names for, like, the illegal practices. And so some of it's illegal, what you're seeing in Vegas. Some of it is um, technically legal um, because they're recruiting. You're, you're really not supposed to solicit yeah. um, okay. in all of Vegas. So most of that is illegal. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> but if, if the actual sexual service um, is negotiated in a brothel, then it's legal. Um, and so brothels, most brothels allow outdates where you could negotiate for services at a brothel and then go for a date in Reno or Vegas or wherever, um, even if it's illegal. Oh, they're working have... it around the system that yeah. way. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. see. So I see how it goes. There are all sorts wow. of things. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that changed, that, like, it just... I always just thought it was legal in Vegas. Yeah, no, it's not. That's it's that is one something of the I don't think places. a lot of people know. Yeah, that. so prostitution, if you're listening, not, not legal, legal in, in Vegas. Vegas. Yeah, but uh, it is it's legal in all sorts of pockets all over the state. Yeah, and so the clientele is really different um, in the suburban brothels. It's a lot more 
tourists or people who are flying in from um, other parts of the country. Um, there are like wealthy people who come in for appointments, um, and <laughs> they'll. Um, hold on. Uh, so there are wealthy people who will come in for appointments, and they'll fly into the bigger cities um, and go to the suburban brothels. Suburban brothels generally are a little bit more uh, set up like spas or resorts and so they might have pools and workout facilities and uh, like workout facilities uh uh-huh yeah because a lot of the women live in the brothels for their contract period so they've got kitchens and bedrooms and their compounds just big things um but more the rural brothels that's where you'll see more of like double wide trailers out in the middle of desert um, that's so sketchy and and um a lot of their clientele are truck drivers going down route 80 huh and so yeah it's like really different clientele really different purposes for why people are seeking the services um and there's just a lot of diversity among the women who are working and why they're working and the clients that are coming out. And so, um, that's, yeah. yeah. I mean, well, obviously, what is it? Brie was in your yeah. class, super smart. Yeah. No one even knows mm-hmm. that's breaking the stereotype of what you would think. Yeah. Um, is she like all in on it or was it just an avenue? I, I don't want to give anything of a book or yeah, if no, you can't answer, don't, you know, don't, but, um, is it like an avenue for her to get out, like get somewhere? Right. So is that is that her main thing? That's or? a that's a good question. So a lot of people who work in the legal brothels set short term goals where they say like, okay, once I make enough money to pay off my student loans, then I'm done. Once I can buy a house, then I'm done. You know, whatever. They've got short term goals. Um, there are some people who are expect to work there for their career but that's a pretty small number of people so for Brie it started out um, as a way to manage paying for school Um, so she was a college student and uh, looking to make some money and and interested and curious about it too and so she was open to the idea of trying it and so um, as she's finished her undergraduate degree, become involved in this research, now working on her master's. Now she wants to be a professor. Um, So she is really interested in studying these sorts of things and um, especially thinking about like human sexuality from an academic perspective. And so like using her experience to help her to... I mean, she can speak firsthand on it, right? Yeah, well, and, and she just has thought about it in more complex ways, I think, than a lot of people do. And so, yeah, she's down the road. She wants to get her PhD. I think she'll finish her, she's working on her thesis right now. Um, looking, she developed a course with Sarah um, at the University of Nevada on stigma and communication. <laughs> and so she's looking to see if taking that course changes people's attitude, attitudes towards stigmatized groups. Um, and so she's working on her thesis. I think she's probably going to work at the brothels for another couple years. And then she wants to get her PhD after that. So do, do they start out with that thing? And are there a lot of them that get stuck in it or do they, a lot of them actually get, reach their goals and leave? Like, do they stay disciplined enough to get through that 
and then go somewhere. They go yeah, on about so, the lives. Uh, it's a complicated question. So there are two parts I think that I want to focus on. So uh, first, well, so some people do. Some people say I'm going to work for a short time and then they, they get out. But I think a lot of people, it's hard to make that kind of money with the amount of flexibility that they have um, in other areas. So, uh, so they also might leave the brothel try working in another area, get frustrated. And so it says just as much about like how terrible other labor practices are and in other industries, right? That someone would rather work in the brothel for short periods of time than have a nine to five job in a corporate office or something, you know? Um, so that's one part. The, some of these jobs just aren't competitive with what they're able to do. Well, yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't like, see how they would be. There are you know? some people yeah. who are moms, and they were talking about like the work-life balance, that uh, they are able to work for two weeks and then not work for three months, and so it lets them have more time with their kids, which you wouldn't think about, right, as a reason why somebody might want to work at a problem. <laughs> um, but yeah. then an, another part of it is that, uh, and we have a chapter in our book where we talk about these non-transferable skills so a lot of these women working in the legal brothels they have to um they have to market themselves they have to negotiate with every single client they negotiate prices so it's them that do it not right they don't set prices or anything no the, the houses don't set it's like a commission sales job it so it is um they have to give 50 percent back to the house which sounds like a lot um, but it's not really if they're providing housing for them. Right. And so they, they pay rent for their room. That's pretty minimal. Um, in the same way that a hairdresser might rent a chair at a salon. Yeah. Um, and they can live in that room for their entire contract period. It's their space. They've got a room and board that's covered with their rent. Um, is that a law that requires them to do 50%? Because that seems like a really fair, it actually seems fair to to me, if you say that, mm-hmm. if you told me that I was going to go sell something for somebody and I get 50% of it, mm-hmm. that's more than fair. Yeah, I don't, I, that's actually a good question. I've spent a lot of time looking at the laws, but I don't, I don't think it's a law, but it is common practice. That's just it's, kind of what the business is like yeah. to get the people you need to get, you give them 50%. Yeah, you, yeah, you do 50%. But that also means that like when, so each each woman can ne- negotiate with her clients. Um, she can turn down anybody that she wants, so they're not obligated. Um, Boss doesn't come to, down hard on them for doing no, that? No, uh-uh, no. Um, so all legal prostitutes in Nevada brothels are independent contractors. Um, and so they have to file taxes. 1099s. 1099s. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Like, they file 1099s. They... Um, they acquired their own client base. And so they have all these skills that they build up because they're having to market themselves. And so, and sales and social media, because they have to build a, an online presence of some sort, interact with clients. But they can't, if they want to get out of the industry, they can't say, I have these skills unless they're willing to own the stigma that goes along with being a sex worker. And so that is the challenge for a lot of people who are trying to get out. Is that you gotta put that out there? Yeah, and it's so, like 
Brie talked about this one. That's a tough one. internship because that once she you had. Yeah. once you do it, and then if I'm a employer, and I've got to look at you know you've got to tell me that I go. Okay, well now now automatically in your mind, what no matter what you just heard from that person, your opinion is going to change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so then you it makes it harder for you to get out once you start. Right. Yeah. Right. So Bree talks about this one internship that she had where uh, it was doing a lot of marketing stuff, which she has so much experience with, and uh, they kept showing her things that she needed to do. She already knew how to do them, but she didn't want to admit that she knew these things because then she would have to explain where she built the skills. And so she played dumb and uh, it got, it became really frustrating for her though, because they viewed her as less experienced than what she was. Yep. Yep. I could see that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the wheels are turning in my head right now. Like, man, this is. This is a funky path. So if somebody sees it, they don't know that in advance. Right. They don't. You don't realize that uh, maybe a young, a young kid trying to put herself through school doesn't mm-hmm. realize that down the road this is the consequence of taking that path of making this money. Well, it's it's strange in the state of Nevada too because it's uh, some some people view it with a lot of. Uh, a lot of the judgment that you would expect in the rest of the country, but there are other people who have grown up right next to the brothels. And so they don't necessarily see that as a bad thing that you have that in your work history. So if you're, if you get one of those people, right, it might be fine. Right. Um, but it's, that's one of the difficult things with Brie just in managing her identity through working on all this research is like what name to publish under and (laughs) how does she link her identities or not? And, you know, does she want people to know, um, what her stage name is? And she doesn't, you know, she's keeping all of these things really distinct right now, but it's complicated. I can see where it'd be very complicated. I'm not, I'm definitely not for them. Um, they seem kind of creepy to me, you know, on the outside and my morals and views. And obviously I'm a softie and all about love and everything else like that and connecting with people. And I would never personally set foot in a place like that. But I also have the same view, kind of like Nevada, where like drugs for say, I have never done drugs in my life. Mm -hmm. People don't believe me when that because I am a crazy weirdo, (laughs) but I really haven't. I just never wanted to. I've never had an interest the way I was raised, there's a whole bunch of things that go into it. Yeah. Um, I don't like smoking because I don't like putting things in my lungs. Mm-hmm. That whole thing. Yeah. But I'm also for making it legal yeah. because I think people should have the... They're going to do it anyway and they should... An ad, a grown adult should have the freedom to choose certain things in their life um, as long as it's not harming others. Mm-hmm. That's kind of my view on it. So if you look at it, like they're going to do illegal prostitution anyway. So if you make it legal like Nevada, and I'm curious like your thoughts and views and like what you learned over this mm-hmm. in how the state is different from outside areas that don't okay. have it legal that are still doing it and people, they're getting busted and they're going, we're putting these people in jail right. and so on and so forth. Right. Yeah. Uh, I, I went into this project not even knowing what my opinions were, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, but they, they've really developed over the course of this project and... I think that the way that 
prostitution is criminalized right now in the United States means that there are a lot of women who are bear the brunt of the stigma and punishment for uh, a, a practice that you might be morally opposed to, right? But it it goes on, and there are um, like long historical reasons why, you know. And so, uh, one thing about the legal brothels is that they're able to be regulated, and there's oversight, and uh, the I mean the public health piece is huge too. Um, yeah. That <clears throat> one of the one of the things that several sex workers talked about is the fact that people will go out to bars and have a one night stand yeah. and you're so much more likely to get an STD if you're part of hookup culture than if you would go to a legal brothel. Um, That's kind of crazy if you think about it. Yeah. Even even with the percentage people of people so. with the truck drivers mm-hmm. because they're not always the cleanest people. No, but they know? in order to get any sort of sexual service, they have to pass a... STD. The clients do? So the clients get a visual inspection um, as soon as they're there. If there's if there's something that's like a visible STD, they won't get any service. That's but they I get did not know. <laughs> but but all the sex workers that we talk to, they're they're very educated on all of this because they have to be able to identify STDs. They have literature that they're able to give to clients to explain what they have um, and to help them to find resources to care. Whole other for... can of worms. Right. It's like a doctor's office. <laughs> yeah. I mean, right? so these are the sort of things that blew my mind at the beginning where I was just like, I didn't even think about that, you know? And so, um, and then there's just, there's security and uh, surveillance videos and things that just make it so it's a safer context in a lot of ways. Um, and a lot of the clients... I don't know. There are a lot of reasons why people seek out the brothels, but the base, their customer base that is reliable, their return clients are largely people who are seeking intimacy and that's missing from their lives. And so we heard a lot of examples of people who have, um, have disabilities of different sorts, um, that have social anxieties and, uh, like worried that a person that they might never be touched and that a person could never love them. And they go, uh, in order to have companionship, like the most sought sexual service is called the girlfriend experience, GFE. And, uh, the, uh, the GFE includes cuddling and kissing and holding hands and sometimes like watching movies and having dinner together and, that is the most sought after experience, which is sad almost. It is. Know? It is kind of. It, it's sad that 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 they feel they have to go there to get that. Yeah. Like you have but, to pay for it. But and there's that. This is popping up in like big I, cities if, all over the place where there are professional cuddlers in New York City. I've heard of that right? actually. I've actually. I think I've actually seen some sort of like a podcast that does comedian stuff play videos about professional cuddlers. Mm-hmm. That's what they do. And yeah. it's a legit thing. It is. It and they is. make money doing it. Right. Like a living. They do yeah. that as a profession. They just right. go around, they cuddle, and they... Yeah. yeah. So I don't know uh, if this is true across brothels, but at one of the brothels, 
Um, it, they have amazing record keeping at, at all of these places. They've got a front office that looks like any business office, you know, with records and, and a time clock and all that, you know, um, people punch in, punch out. Um, and so one of the... Carry your lunch bill in the Yeah, way. exactly. One of the brothels told us that according to their records, only about 70% of the services that they provide include uh, sexual contact. That the other 30%, it's just conversation, maybe a back rub, um, uh, holding hands, having dinner, watching movies, going on dates. It's funny if you, if you openly said, "Hey, I like I feel like I I need companionship. I'm going to pay somebody to give me a hug, to cuddle with me, whatever, like watch a movie. I need to pay somebody to go watch a movie with me because I need I need to hang out with somebody and be close." It would sound ridiculous. Right? And yet, what some of the women that we interviewed talked about is they're like, "Yeah, but isn't that what you do when you if you, you know, find somebody that you don't really know very well, but right. Yeah. You buy their ticket. You like think about all the money that you spend in the early stage of a relationship, trying to woo somebody and think about all the like emotional labor that goes along with that too. In this context, we know that it's bound in certain ways and there are no strings attached. And so like the relationship is whatever we want it to be during the confines of our time together. And we get to define that and be very clear about what our boundaries are. And so, like, I know, it's it, so it really makes, it makes the wheels turn. You know, because I'm sitting here thinking, and I'm going, well, I mean, if, let's say, a husband or a wife cheats on their spouse, mm-hmm. that's not illegal. There's no law against that. It's true. Yeah. But there is a law against you paying to go to one of these, play, like, to somebody in Texas mm-hmm. and do that same exact thing that you just did legally. Right. So, like, that part right there seems kind of backwards to me. It just seems like we're contradicting what we're promoting. Like, we're okay with people having affairs all day long. Like, really and truly, it's looked down upon by some people, Mm -hmm. but then other people are like, I mean, well, you run happy, so it's okay, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, which I think is sad, but at the same time, prostitution's illegal. I think that the moral question is something like moral religious beliefs are separate from legal the ultimate separation of church and state really like uh it's like the law you can't buy alcohol before noon on sundays yeah right. or some people don't sell it on sundays like that's there for religious reasons like mm-hmm. okay i mean I, that's a silly law right it's really silly because you've got two separate things going on you've got People who aren't religious that you're taking away something they like because mm-hmm. of your religion that you don't partake in. Right. But it's legal the rest of the time. So uh, it's kind of a, a legitimate like, hey, morally you don't agree with it. Don't do it. Don't support it. Don't spend your money on it. Right. And yeah. so, you know, I think that because prostitution is legal in the brothel setting in Nevada, but they're able to do outdates, like then that starts to create this fuzziness where it's like, okay, so this practice is legal in this context, but if you, you know, if you meet your client 
on the sidewalk outside the brothel instead of inside the brothel. Now you're doing something that you could be arrested for. Well, it's a, so it's just like drinking at a bar. You go yeah. drink at a bar. <laughs> yeah, you can't you move You leave the this. bar drunk and walk down the street drunk, you get a PI. Yeah. But if you're in the bar, yeah. you're good. Right. So it's safe. But as soon as you become an endangered to somebody else, mm-hmm. like so if you're a prostitute that wants to go on your own somewhere else in a different state or a different area where it's not legal and you're not getting your checkups and you're not reporting your income and you're not doing all these things that you're supposed to do, well, then you're endangering the lives of somebody that's going to pay for your service. But that's also illegal there too. So it's kind of hard to say that, justify it. But it's kind of the same thing as drinking alcohol. It's It's it's, the same thing as going to a bar. It's amazing um, some of the analogies that people came up with as (laughs) as we were interviewing them, like talking about like, you know, what we're doing isn't different from this industry or that industry. And, and you just realize, like, oh, yeah, no, I hadn't thought about that. You know, I hadn't it thought really about is, it in that It really way. isn't. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny you say that because that's all the things that are popping through my head. It's like, wow. Because you start comparing talking. it to what you're familiar with, right? Yeah. And then you start yeah. to think and you're like, well, huh. So why is it okay for different laws to apply in this setting versus a hospital? You know, like, yeah. why should we hold them to different standards why should the pay be different why should like there were people who wouldn't give uh car loans wouldn't finance a a car for some of the sex workers that we talked to and they were saying like you know i could buy the car in cash but they're they're saying no to me because of the stigma of what i do would you say no to anybody else's legally uh earned money no and so like, why am I different? Like, I'm doing something that's legal in the state. I worked hard for my money. Yeah. You don't want my money, that's fine. I'll take it somewhere else. Well, in that case, and this is just my view on that, is that I'm okay with that because people. I like when people stand up for their moral beliefs, whether they're 100% around it or not. But if, if, if I owned a business and I didn't agree with that person being a sex worker or whatever. And I was outspoken like, Hey, this is totally against it. I don't want them to be open. Well, then I should have the right not to accept their money because then I'm accepting what they do as, you know, it's not like they weren't trying to give them profit. That's cash coming in, but they turned it away because of their belief. Just like the sex workers. Hey, my belief is that it's okay. So we're at a disagreement here. Like, I'm I'm at I'm at an impasse where yeah you know, I'm thinking about this just because because what if the sec- that would be it, like I mean, saying, it, it's also really difficult though if if everybody believes that what you're doing yeah you know then yeah then you can't live a live a life right because of moral judgments um, and so then you become more and more of a pariah because there yeah. are fewer places that you can. Can go do and business be, and, and do business. Things. Yeah, mm-hmm. there's and then it also, has to be mediated through other people. And there's there's also the side of it that's you know what you're getting into in that work that it is a sex worker. Like nobody doesn't know that this is looked at as this. Yeah. You know, so like if if you take the step to become a sex worker, that's part of the repercussions of taking this. You know, I mean, just, that's why there's so much secrecy yeah. that's wrapped up in, in this. Um, because even if even if a woman is working in the brothels and she feels very, uh, very good about her decision, she enjoys her work, um, everything, 
she feels okay with the moral boundaries, like all of that. Um, there's always this constant fear of like, but what if people who are important to me or people that matter don't view it in this way? Right? Yeah. And so, yeah. so there's so much secrecy and then that secrecy is part of what makes uh, a lot of the problems uh, it has worse. To eat, because... like it has to eat it, the person. Well, one. you know, doing like, something secretive. It limits who you can reach out to yeah. for social support. You know, when things get hard, like you've just got a smaller network of people to lean on too, and that that's hard. Which makes it, in turn, if you get into it and you go, "Hey, I really want to change my life," which I'm all about, because I think, you know, free will and choice is a big deal. You yeah. can change it anytime. Um, but it's hard to do. It that. makes it hard for them, like. Really hard, just like yeah. a criminal in prison. Getting out of prison, you've got that on your resume, or that's what you were, and people know, or if people find out, or just in general. Anyway, just yeah, like you said, you can't buy a car because of their moral belief. Well, what if they really want to change their life? Yeah, you know they're not they're not associated with people who are honest, so people aren't going to believe that they want to change their life. It's it's really complicated. It's, <laughs> I mean, it really is. Um, it's really complicated. Because then there's always this fear that um, that it could come up, you know, um, even if you've left the industry. You've had your you job know. for five years. You're an engineer somewhere yeah. at some great firm. And then all of a sudden and, and somebody you, finds a tape on the internet or some sort of, uh, just whatever it is. They yeah. find out somebody actually you used worked your in service. The, you worked in the brothel for two weeks. And then, you know, there for the rest of your life, there's a question of if, if it'll come up. And then that's something that you have to defend. And so, um, if somebody that's... used your service, it's way you said wealthy people. If somebody used that yeah. service and they're up here and they know and they think, man, people are going to find out either I used it or I can't have my company associated with that because the damage it'll do if this comes out, now that person's fired. Yeah, I mean the brothels are really discreet in general. Um, like obviously there are some people that are a little bit more open about it and. Like everybody knows that Lamar Odom was at yeah. the Nevada brothels because yeah. he was in a coma as a result of partying really hard there. Um, <laughs> and so, so like you know that there are certain celebrities yeah. that, that are there and, and yep. certain wealthy people. Um, well, some of them are outspoken about it. Yeah. Some of them are, are like, I mean, I'm an open book, whatever. Like, yeah. this is what I did. Yeah, yeah. I did that. Yeah. This is why I did it. But or, most of know. the clients are just as secretive as the people who work there. Yeah, they don't want so, it to get out either. Right. Yeah. Right. So there's a lot of discretion and which made doing the research really interesting to like see in this secret space, but also complicated because you have to protect everybody's identities while you're doing it. How how did you transition out of like you're going through that now. You're all your avenues, and you're interviewing these people, and you're <clears throat> kind of diving into that world. And then you've got a husband and a family over here. Yeah. How did that? How does that separate? Like, how did that change? Did it change anything? How did you transition out of that stuff into just normal? Like, well, now I'm just going to go teach regular stuff now. <laughs> I don't know if I teach regular stuff in general, though. Like, I stu- <laughs> I study a lot of the stuff that's kind of on the darker more shadowy side because so you I, keep I that, think that's really interesting you, you keep that feel going yeah uh, and i think i was in, i was doing that stuff when my when my husband met me you know like i was i was studying um 
all protest groups and um, abortion and anti-abortion counter-protests. Ooh, that's and, a fun one. And that's a really fun one, too. War and anti-war protests and, and some of these, like, high-profile conflicts, you know? And so I've always been interested in, like... Good and evil. Yeah. Totally and, good and evil. And, like, how people draw those lines and, and justify them and all of that. It's so which, interesting like, to me. Like, how the, do the people on the evil side, do they think they're evil? And that's the thing. So when I was at Oxford, um, I was studying international normative theory which is all about like morals and decision making in politics and so every week i had to write a paper an eight page paper answering some every week every week um an eight page paper on some moral question like uh when should we intervene in genocide and when are you that. justified to go to war? And um, just questions like that. That's and, a tough. That is a. Oh, when are you justified to go to war? Is a tough question. Every single question. Except that I have if somebody is attacks so... your country and is waging war on you, and then you're in defense, you're not really waging the war. So there's this whole theory the called just war theory that eventually like if you follow the the whole argument it gets to the point that says like a just war is a a defensive war and so if you're an aggressor that's not a just cause and so like you're justified to go to war if it's in defense but then when you start like looking at these historical cases nobody ever thinks that they're the aggressor like everybody if you read their account of why they're at war it's because you started it. It's like yeah. elementary school playground, Even you know, to the like terrorists. he started it. Right, absolutely, because, terrorists. you know, there's that it's saying that, like, one, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. And so yeah. uh, whoever is an insurgent from one perspective is a defender from another perspective because they're, they're operating off of certain values and principles and beliefs that they're, they're trying to protect. And so that's not to say that, like, everybody's right, but it's to say that everybody believes that they are right. Yeah, that's, I, I wasn't making it like... Yeah. Yeah, it's the question of, look at it from the other perspective, those other people don't think they're doing bad. They think they're doing good. Right. So that's why I'm so interested in studying conflict and why I study all of these things is because I just think it's so fascinating that we have a lot of our... The most difficult things about living together have to do with the fact that we all think that we have the story right and that whoever is bad or or crazy in our eyes like if you're mad bad or sick um it's because you believe a different story and so that's what made me study communication is i felt like if i wanted to understand these really dark things and terrible conflicts that go on in our world i had to understand how the story made sense to you and how it made sense to the person who's completely opposed to you that's that is i mean you could just dive down all sorts of rabbit holes it never ends that that question will never ever end job security (laughs) job security (laughs) i'm golden i'm locked in with this i picked the right career that's right for for sure yep this Uh, is not going away so what is what is 
I guess your husband teaches too, huh? Yeah, he does. What does so. he What does he do as he's, far as his stuff? He's in the kinesiology department okay. at A&M. And so he, <laughs> <laughs> um, when we moved to A&M, he got out of college football and got into an academic position. So now he's okay. in the physical education activity program at A&M, and he teaches strength and conditioning classes and... Oh. Yeah, and cool. and um and flag football, and he's developing a fly fishing course. No, is he yeah, really? Yeah, he really is. Yeah, that hopefully That's will awesome. include a field trip up to Montana. Um, From here. Yeah, yeah. Where do you sign up for that? <laughs> it doesn't. <laughs> you have to go to yet. school there because I'm, I'm like past <laughs> that point. But that might make, get me to go to school yeah. so that I can just go fly fishing. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I'll let you know because he's, he's working on it. He's developing it and hopefully it'll be offered for the next time, for the first time next May. Not this coming May, but May 2020. That's what he's hoping. That is, that's yeah. awesome. It really yeah. is awesome. I did a podcast with the lady, Casey Bones. She's a fly fishing guide. One of the very few yeah. women fly fishing guide yeah. and very controversial or can be to some people. I think she's awesome. Yeah. But um, in Rockport. And she just has like she has a cool story. I follow all these fly fishing people going to the Texas Fly Fishing and Craft Beer Festival in Plano. Oh, up there that to meet awesome. people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I I saw it on there, and I'm like, it's second or third one. Oh. And so hopefully do some interviews with some people up there just because I like the fly fishing culture is like a meditated like there's something organic and beautiful about it that yeah. just it just it's quiet, it's difficult, but that the difficulty of catching the fish, fly fishing, is what makes it so, like, its thing. Fly fishing played a really large part in me falling in love with my husband. Because, <laughs> <laughs> like, we would spend this time out on the rivers, and um, I remember when I was first learning, like, getting knots is such a big part, getting tangles and knots is such a big part of learning because it's just hard. And so you're going to get tangles. And so I remember it was like one of my first trips out with him and I was all tangled up and I was just, my ego was getting in the way, you know, because it felt like things usually come naturally to me and I should just be good at this as soon as I start. And here I am all tangled up. So I'm like working on this knot and he comes over and he's like, Hey, just, slow down, relax. If it takes you 15 minutes to get a knot out, it takes you 15 minutes. We're going to be out here for nine more hours. <laughs> so just yes. take your time, you know? And yeah. I just, I loved that whole attitude where it's just like, hey, be where you are. We're here right now. It's us in the river and just listen to the noise and let untangling the knot be part of the experience, you know? And yeah. I, like, I love that. And, and people always ask us, like, how many fish we caught or, like, uh, if we eat the fish that we catch. And, and it's all catch and release for us. And that's just part of, also, I think, this fly fishing ethic of, like, you want to put the fish back so you can, they can go on to reproduce and make the river great and... This will continue to be here, and you can catch them again next time. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And so there's, yeah, there's uh, this patience and philosophy almost that's like built in to fly fishing, and so yeah, it feels spiritual. Yeah, you're like painting, you're creating some art in yeah. some sort of weird way. Yeah. It's you don't think of it that way, but it really is like a musical instrument or something that you're that you're uh, 
doing. Like yeah. you're creating something organic and new that's... Well, and it's... Uh, the, the puzzle of it is fun too because unlike fishing in a in a pond or something where you just throw it out there the fish are somewhere in a pond right they're not leaving the pond right like, there's a lot of there. strategy with fly fishing and so if you're yes. not catching then it's easy to be like well maybe i need to adjust the weight maybe i need to try different flies maybe i need to look at this pocket instead of that pocket yeah, maybe they're not hungry there but they're hungry oh, over here and yeah. the, the river r- flows so far yeah it's like that's why i like saltwater fishing versus bass fishing i mm-hmm. never got into the bass fishing thing that much yeah. because it's the ocean yeah they can go anywhere <laughs> yeah. like they don't discriminate where they go yeah. so it's a constant stalk and um I like using artificials or whatever instead of bait because then it's the ultimate like game of tag, I guess, mm. or whatever you want to say. Yeah. It, you're, you're stalking your prey. Yeah. They have every bit of fighting chances you do of catching them as they do of not being in the spot mm-hmm. you're there. So mm-hmm. you have to think and understand what you're about to catch. Yeah. 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 One of the coolest experiences that we had that wasn't river fishing, we were, we did some uh, deep sea fishing uh, off of Outer Banks, North Carolina, and uh, oh. we went cobia fishing. Oh, oh, that's such a good fish. We were just so I love lucky. to eat it, and I, I we eat ate fish, it. But, oh yeah, we okay. ate it. So, yeah, <laughs> awesome. No, you can you can splay it right there and just eat they the did? fish. They did. Yeah, it was incredible. Yeah. And so we were just lucky to be there because they only go through there like two weeks a year, and they just happened to be there when we were there, and that was so much fun because they. Like they swim with the turtles, and so you would see the turtles, and that was the first sign that, oh, like, awesome. uh, oh, there, there are probably cobia around, and so then we would, you know, drive the boat over there, and and it, they're big fish, so it's kind yes. of uh, an adrenaline rush when you get one up, and it's just like, oh my gosh, fighting it too, yeah. feeling that power, yeah, that's oh, yeah. something else. It's like, whoa, yeah. that thing is strong, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fishing gives you a lot of. Like hunting, Kim and I have talked about this, like how, like hunting and fishing, like people who don't do it, see it as, um, like violent and animal gratuitous and yeah, all these things. And the thing is like, uh, most of the people that I know that are part of those cultures have a lot of respect for life because they understand the life cycle in a different way. And like, uh, I, I grew up on a farm and uh, we had chickens. I mentioned this to you. We had chickens. Yep, I had chickens. I don't uh, really particularly enjoy chickens <laughs> when they're alive. Like <laughs> they're, they're kind of like That's so funny. Uh, stupid uh. and mean, and but they're delicious. Yeah, and and they make eggs. Right, and I love eggs. And I I wouldn't just go like kill a bunch of chickens for the fun of killing them, but I would eat a chicken. And be appreciative of the fact that it's nourishing my body. And so, like, that's kind of my view towards hunting and fishing. Like, you're not just going out and killing for the fun of killing. Um, I believe in, like, not just the sport of it, but in, like, that recognition of life sustaining itself. Yeah. And so, like, that's just part of... Well, most people that are protested will go to the grocery store buy ground beef and they buy that and that's way like worlds like torture it's like camps of just it's like concentration camps for animals and 
at its worst it is, you but, know. But those hunters, the hunters that give people a bad name are the, you know, the people who do just enjoy killing an animal and they don't. When you have to do something like fly fishing, that's why I like it so much. And the saltwater fishing. And then you have to stalk it. You learn about the animal. You respect the life. Mm -hmm. And so that means that much more to you when you get it. Yeah. And you understand where it came from. It's made me more and, of a conservationist, too. Yeah. And, um, it's like weird the way it works, isn't the environment. it? Yeah, because, you know, I don't want... I don't want development to happen in a way that would pollute these rivers because you just start to see how connected everything is, right? Yes. Like, uh, if it, the smallest changes in water temperature totally changes the ecosystem of, you know, the bug life and the fish and the plants, and yep. and then that affects the larger animals that can be supported, and so you just start to see how connected everything is. Yeah, yeah. It it is it's a wonderful thing to be like just go out there i went out there with maddie and uh, my neighbor and his his son and we just walked around looking for squirrels and rabbits because uh, we've been watching meat eater on tv and she is like all into it we want to go get food you know <laughs> fish hunt anything with that you know teach her how to shoot a gun and respect the gun teach her how to shoot a bow and respect the bow and yeah. those sort of things and so we're walking around in, in these woods and we don't see anything really except off in the distance we can't get to like a typical hunting day might be when you're stalking stuff. And um, it's just, there's something about it when you get done, you feel refreshed and recharged. And even if you don't get anything, yeah. even if you don't get anything, you just feel like I just spent some time in nature and that's where the development and all that. If you took it away, like yeah. I would be sad yeah. and people would be sad really. Like human beings don't realize how important it is that you, we have our roads and our system and we have our grocery stores and uh, restaurants and our jobs and big buildings and realize how important it is to get back to our roots of, hey, we, we grew up in woods. Yeah, that's why this summer is so good for us. So when Jota was working in college football, we never could have had the lifestyle that we have now. But now that we're both on this academic calendar, as soon as we can in May, we go up to Montana and we're in that small cabin in right outside the northeast gate of Yellowstone, which is the most remote gate. And so it's just wildlife and mountains and rivers and our cell phones don't work. And Beautiful. like it's and we're there for three months and we go hiking and we're just we're there. And I feel like it's so rejuvenating and it's just I love that my son gets to grow up with that as part of his life. You know, we're, we're like spending half the day throwing rocks into rivers and, you know, like that's great. Like <laughs> yeah, I love skipping it. rocks and yeah, stuff. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, well, it's really special. I'm jealous of the Montana thing. Oh, like, I, we always said like we, we've been to Park City, Utah, very outdoor place, yeah. not a big town. We fell in love with that place. We fell in love with Maui. We were like, if we could do it, we would live six months or less mm. in Utah and then go to, and just rotate and use like Airbnb or rent out our, yeah. our thing. If this is in our dream world. Yeah. yeah, We'd have to save up our money and get it, but rotate spots because yeah. they're just so, rem it's like living in that environment 24 yeah. seven. This is what I respect so much about Joda is because he makes me a lot braver than I would be on my own. Cause <laughs> I never would have done the Montana thing um, because I'm too scared, but he bears. It, no, no, just about like the investment of it. Like it was a big thing. We're not rich. Like we're not rich. Yeah. Um, and so like this place 
it had the the place that we bought in Montana has when we bought it it was built in the 70s we knew the guy who owned it before um he passed away in his 90s and um it's a quirky place there was a hot tub in the middle of the living room surrounded by shag carpet he built the entire house around that hot tub yeah so it kind of sounds like what you see in your Nevada places yeah in some ways yeah (laughs) in some ways yeah so it was a big renovation project and we found out that we that they accepted our offer on this place the same week I found out that I was pregnant with Luke and so we knew it was going to be a hard renovation because we had to totally transform the place and do it in one summer because we had to rent it out. We needed to refinance and rent it out in order to be able to afford strict, having it. Strict schedule. Right? So I'm like wearing my baby <laughs> while we're <laughs> while we're staining this place and Choda just had this incredible vision to get it done. And so in one summer, I'll have to show you before and after pictures because it's crazy. Like it went from this 70s party house into this really I think a really beautiful cabin that like now we rent it out during the summers and we're like the the housekeeping (laughs) that lives in in the detached garage um and by renting it we're able to afford having it um and so it lets us live this life which is really cool I like the way you make it work. That's yeah. uh, that. It really is awesome. Thanks. All right. Well, thank you for doing the podcast. Yeah, this was fun. I I really really liked it. Thank you. Yeah.